Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcasts. I am your host, Alex Lawson. We are again without the services of Amber McKinney this week, but joining me as always is my co-host, stationed dutifully out in Los Angeles. It's Haley Knopf. Haley, hello. What up, Alex? What's going on? I uh, I had a question because you've been sort of a regular fixture on the show for better part of a year now. And I don't know, I can't recall if at any time in the show's canon, if we had you on record as to whether or not you were a Swifty. Oh. Are you? Because as we record now, we are on the eve this of the release true. of the new Taylor Swift album. We've talked about her on the show before. She is involved in a lot of lawsuits. But I did just want to know if you were, are you excited about the release of this album? Are you indifferent? Do you care? I am excited. I'm not sure I would label myself a Swifty, but... <laughs> But maybe I am. I mean, her music is great. Yeah. Always, I don't mean to throw... always exciting when there's a new album on the horizon. And uh, as you mentioned, because I'm in L.A., said album will drop at 9 p.m. tonight for me. Nice. Yeah. Which yeah, is always dangerous. On... Yeah. Because yeah, then yeah. I could like stay up all night listening to these new releases. But it's a good point. The album is called Midnight's, which is a little bit of a misnomer for people who uh, aren't in the Eastern time zone when it's going to be released. But anyway. indeed. Yeah. Are you excited? Uh, not not especially. I've I, I've said this before in the context of talking about her various other legal misadventures. Always been much more of a um, fan of the earlier poppier stuff than the more like sort of folksy oh, direction yes. we've gone in the last couple of turns. But I'm not a hater either. I'm sort of indifferent. But yeah, no, that's fair. I think I agree that she peaked with 1989. But, I would agree. Yeah. But let's not get to I mean, we could keep going for we hours could. on this. We could, but we have lots to get to later on in the show. We are going to hear from Andrew Strickler, who is uh, I think he's up to I don't know, we might be at like nine or 10 appearances for Strickler on the podcast at this point. <laughs> He always has his ear to the ground for really interesting legal industry stories. And we got a humdinger for you this week. Some to say the least. Explosive allegations against the law firm Deckert LLP and specifically one of its former London partners who is accused of like leaking to the press to scare up business against his own client. Very strange, like overlapping RICO cases. He's been sued by a former Wall Street Journal reporter. It's a crazy story, and Strickler uh, did a great job breaking it down for us. Before we get to the news of the day, though, I did want to offer a small update on a story we talked about last week, also having to do, interestingly enough, with a former big law partner accused of salacious wrongdoing. Uh, this is the tale of former KL Gates partner Willie Dennis, who you may recall was fired from the firm, um, eventually sued the firm for discrimination. And in the course of that saga, sent is alleged to have sent threatening emails to his former colleagues saying things like sleep with one eye open, vague sort of cyber stalking threats. Anyway, he was found guilty uh, this week of criminal cyber stalking related to this digital harassment campaign. He was uh, convicted on three charges of cyber stalking, each of which carries with it up to five years in prison. Okay. So we'll keep an eye on that, obviously, for sentencing and things like that, but did want to say we do have a conviction in that case. Man, we we sure have our fair share of big law. No good nicks? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was really uh, yeah. searching for the word there, but thank you. Um, yes. But yeah, so let's, for our first story, I do want to shift gears a little bit. 
there's an a really kind of unique case against Snapchat. It's a it's a pretty sad one though. So the families of eight young people who died of fentanyl overdoses around the country say Snapchat is partially to blame for those deaths. And they said that this is because the app's features encourage and facilitate the sale of counterfeit drugs, especially to teenagers and young adults. So they filed this uh, complaint this week against Snapchat's parent company, that's Snap Inc., in Los Angeles County Superior Court. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you don't have to look very hard to find news about fentanyl overdoses, and obviously, especially tragic when children are involved. But this is, in addition to those very sad facts, uh, there are some pretty interesting legal theories at play here. What do the families say happened with these overdoses, and where do they lay the blame at Snapchat's feet? Yeah, so to, to set things up here, the eight victims ranged in age from 14 to 20. And according to the suit, they all thought they were purchasing medications like Percocet or Xanax, but ultimately the pills that they got were fentanyl pressed to look like prescription medications. And those pills were allegedly lethal enough to kill multiple people with a single dose. And the victims all allegedly got those pills from dealers that they connected with on Snapchat. Yeah, I wanted to talk about, because it's not just the fact that they happened to get in touch with these drug dealers on Snapchat. That, even just from a layperson's angle, is probably not enough to get the company itself on the hook for some kind of liability. But you were talking about there are sort of features within the app that the families have really seized upon here in these in these legal documents. What is that about? Exactly. So if you've used Snapchat, you can probably guess which features these are for everyone fortunate enough to not be entangled in uh, all of these various <laughs> social media apps. We I am walk not a Snapchatter, so yeah, please walk me through it. Yeah. I know I had I understand the basics, but so probably yeah, the biggest one is the app has disappearing messages. So any communication just automatically goes away unless you save it. And it also has a feature called My Eyes Only. And that's for messages that you want to keep even more private than these automatically disappearing ones. And to see those, you have to enter a passcode. And then there's also a map feature that allows users to see where their Snapchat friends are. And according to the families, all these features make it hard for parents or even law enforcement to see who a kid has been talking to. And it also makes it easier for people to conduct these allegedly illicit sales. So the families are represented by the Social Media Victims Law Center, along with a law firm named C.A. Goldberg PLC. Here's a quote from a joint statement from those lawyers. Snapchat provides drug dealers with a never-ending source of young customers, obstructs parental supervision, enables dealers to locate and access nearby minors and young adults, and promises the posting and exchange of drug menus and other information that disappears, erasing evidence of the sale and crime. I don't know if it's entirely novel off the top of my head. I can imagine people have probably sued over stuff like this before, but I mean, what shape do the actual legal claims take? I would imagine there's some consumer protection stuff going on, probably some negligence. What are we looking at just in terms of the kind of nuts and bolts of the legal claims? 
Yeah, that's exactly it. The families are alleging product liability and negligence claims for design defects, failure to warn, and infliction of emotional distress. They're also alleging violation of consumer protection laws, unjust enrichment, invasion of privacy, and public nuisance. Okay, and what does Snapchat have to say? I can imagine it's carefully phrased, I would imagine, given the sensitive nature of it. But also, it's a pretty serious allegation they're facing here. What what have they said to you? I know you personally did the reporting here. I did, yeah. So Snap gave me a statement that uh, they're being pretty tight-lipped as far as the litigation itself, which is, you know, to be expected at this stage. A lot of times, companies don't want to dive super far into allegations right away. But they said broadly that several allegations in the complaint, quote, appear to be wholly inaccurate. And they also offered a bunch of information on how they said they handle the issues that are outlined in the complaint. So according to Snap, they use cutting-edge technology to proactively track down and shut down the accounts of drug dealers. The company also blocks search results for drug-related terms and instead redirects users to resources about the dangers of fentanyl. The company said that it's made significant operational improvements to better detect and remove dealers from the app over the last year or so. And it's expanded its support for law enforcement investigations. It's promoting some in-app educational videos that warn about the dangers of counterfeit pills. And Snap says that it's participating in a national public awareness campaign that's just about to launch. I was kind of grasping at this before about if there have ever been, you know, any other social media companies that have faced allegations about the damage that they're allegedly doing to the children of the world uh, and the nation. Now, I mean, there are any number of attenuated claims that you could make, but I know you looked into this a little bit. I mean, what is the state of play on trying to hold social media companies to account for stuff like that? It's a really interesting area of law right now because there have been several lawsuits against social media companies just broadly alleging damaging effects of their features. Most relevant to, to this case, there have been cases over the mental health effects of these apps on children. Earlier this year, Snapchat, along with Meta, that's Facebook's parent company, and TikTok, They were all sued by the mother of an 11-year-old who died by suicide. And that mother said that the child was addicted to all the apps and it really, you know, ruined her mental health. And so it's, you know, it's an evolving area of law. And as we know, these apps keep changing. The features are changing. Mm -hmm. So these cases, I think, are going to keep changing, too. It'll be it'll be interesting to follow. All right, we will shift focus now to the National Football League. Um, I was covering one of these cases, but we're talking about two legal proceedings underway, cases brought by former NFL head coaches, both of whom are suing the league over the terms of their departure from the teams that they used to coach. Now, that's kind of where the similarities between the cases end on factual grounds. But over the last couple of weeks, the two different cases have begun to align and uh, inform one another, and it makes for some strange bedfellows, which I'll get into here. So the one case which I think most people, if you're a sports fan, a fan of the NFL you've heard of, is the former uh, Miami Dolphins head coach, Brian Flores. And he is black, 
And he claims that he was unlawfully fired by the Miami Dolphins after last season and that he was discriminated against in subsequent interviews to, to get a new coaching job by several teams in the league. So that's one case. That's a discrimination case brought by Brian Flores. Now, the other is a case brought by John Gruden, who formerly coached the Las Vegas Raiders, who left the team after the release of private emails from his, from his private email account that featured him using misogynistic, racist, homophobic language. And there was lots of fallout from that. And he eventually stepped away and he eventually sued the league. So those are the two cases that are going on. But as I'm, as I'm trying to explain, other than being, you know, about coaches who no longer coach, uh, who are no longer head coaches, the similarities are very thin. Yeah, these two are wildly different uh, as far as the underlying facts here. But so what do we need to know about these suits? Yeah, so like I said, with Gruden, he stepped down from coaching the Raiders a year ago when his emails were published. And that was published in the context of there was a workplace misconduct investigation of the Washington football team, now called the Washington Commanders. There was all that's a whole other separate proceeding which we'll probably cover on Pro Se at some point. But there was like hundreds of thousands of emails surfaced by investigators, and some of them got leaked to the media, most primarily John Gruden's. And the messages from John Gruden included racist, sexist, homophobic commentary on the NFL's union president, Demora Smith, and against NFL commissioner Roger Goodell, uh, some of the league's female referees. It was generally very unsavory stuff. So Gruden Yikes. sues the league. Yeah, Gruden sued the league, and he effectively accused Roger Goodell and the NFL office of either engineering or at least failing to prevent the leak of his emails. And he is saying, look, there's like 650,000 communications came up in this investigation, and only mine, the very worst things that I said, he apologized for them. But really, only mine were leaked to the press, and I suffered the consequences because of it. So then there's the case of Brian Flores, who, like I said, he uh, had a winning record with the Dolphins last year, but he was fired. And then he was given what he believes was a sham interview by the New York Giants to fulfill this obligation that the league has that requires teams to interview at least one racial minority candidate when they have a coaching vacancy, which is called the Rooney Rule. Uh, again, if you follow the league, you probably know about this, but it has been sort of, while its intention is to diversify the job pool, it is often seen as kind of like a fig leaf where you just kind of check a box, you interview someone black for the job so you can hire the person that you really want to hire. Right. So yeah, and then his suit came into New York, New York federal court a few months after Gruden's basically accusing the league, like I said, of this, of racially discriminating against him. And he was eventually joined by two other former black coaches who have attested to having similar experiences. And aside here is this whole segment is reminding me to set my fantasy football lineup. Uh, oh, yeah, well. Which I, I need to do right after this call. But it's also reminding me why I feel guilty for being an NFL fan <laughs> all the time. Um, well, that's, yeah. Well, service <laughs> journalism at its best is me reminding yeah. you to set your fantasy lineup. Yeah. Oh, of course, of course. So in any event, how do these cases dovetail apart from, you know, just being about these coaches fighting how they were dismissed? Yeah, so both cases are, you know, they were each filed within the last year in the relatively preliminary stages, but each case is now centered around 
the league's efforts to move these suits out of the courtroom and into private arbitration. Now, if you've been listening to Pro Se for a long time, you know that employment arbitration agreements is a little bit of a hobby horse for us. We love it. The sort of <laughs> the general perception, this isn't always true, but the perception is that employers are generally thought to have an advantage in arbitration contexts for various reasons. And even if they don't have an advantage, the league can at least avoid messy PR situations uh, and public discovery of their internal communications by bringing it behind closed doors. So they're, they have an active interest in trying to do that. And so the coaches' contracts generally carry clauses that require any kind of employment dispute to be moved to arbitration. But both Flores and Gruden have argued that these provisions are effectively unconscionable and unfair on their face and can't be expected to be enforced. Now, the first domino in this saga fell just earlier this month when the judge, the the, uh, Las Vegas judge that is hearing Gruden's case, denied the league's motion to arbitrate, kept it in court. And that was a huge development because now you had Flores' legal team seeing this, and they basically wrote a letter to their judge saying, hey, this uh, denial of arbitration in the Gruden case, we think that you should take a look at that. And I just thought that this was a very interesting development when you consider that you got one guy who is saying that he was discriminated against because he is black, now appending his legal defense to that of a coach who was fired for saying racist stuff. I find to be cruelly ironic and just kind of enlightens you as to the nature of these types of employment disputes. Yeah, goodness gracious. So what did the attorneys say and what are the big takeaways here? What should we know? Yeah, so like I say, Flores' attorneys basically flagged the Gruden judge's ruling, denial of arbitration, in a letter to the judge hearing their case, basically saying the court should look at, quote, this new persuasive authority that's raised by the decision. Now, the judge... Uh, in the Flores case, is still weighing that arbitration decision. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. There are a few things to consider, though. First off, um, I haven't even talked about venue, but the Flores case is happening in New York federal court. And now they are asking that federal judge to rely on a Nevada state court decision. So just on its face, you can see some procedural hurdles there. And the league could pretty easily say that decision is not binding on us in this court. I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's just a pretty easy armchair observation. But yeah, another big factor, though, in the Gruden case, and this is something that differentiates between the two, is the fact that Gruden is suing the league, but notably he is not suing the Raiders, which is the team that he used to work for. And the judge basically found that this arbitration clause was in his contract, which is between Gruden and the Raiders. The NFL is not a party to that contract. Uh So that really informed the Gruden decision, but that is not at issue in the Flores case where they have sued not only the league, but the teams themselves. So the teams could ostensibly still say, hey, you sign these agreements. It says to arbitrate stuff like this, and we're sticking by that. So there are a few mitigating factors uh, still at play here, but it's an interesting, hugely interesting issue. And the NFL is pretty desperate to kind of quietly make it go away thus far without success uh, uh, in terms of the Gruden case, but uh, we will be keeping an eye out to see uh, how it plays out.
Legal headaches keep piling up for big law fixture Deckert LLP and the disgraced former head of its white-collar practice, Neil Girard. Lawsuits have cropped up on both sides of the Atlantic, accusing the firm of rampant corruption, cybercrime, and fraud. Here to break down the salacious goings-on at Deckert and Gerard's mounting legal woes is Law360 editor-at-large Andrew Strickler. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. You are always reporting on interesting things in the industry, and this is no exception. Very wild stuff going on for Deckert and for this uh, former Deckert attorney specifically, but I do just want to get us situated. What do we need to know about this Neil Gerard guy? What did he do at Deckert? And why, most importantly, why do all of our stories describe him as a disgraced former big law partner? Okay, well, uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, Neil Girard is, um, he's about 67, 68 years old, kind of on the back end of his career right now. But he started as a London police officer before becoming an attorney in the early 90s. Um, in 1995, he went to DLA Piper, a name well-known to everyone here, and helped build a white-collar practice at that huge multinational firm. While he was there, DLA was hired by a company called Eurasian Natural Resources Corporation, which is this massive multinational mining conglomerate, to do the investigation into some alleged corruption in some of its affiliates overseas. That investigation was triggered by a very damning article that had appeared in a newspaper in London in which there had been sort of whistleblower allegations of corruption. Gerard was at DLA uh, working on that case for a couple more years. He moved to Deckard. And at the time, Deckard estimated that the case was going to cost in ENRC about 400,000 pounds. Over the next two years, the scope of that case just exploded. All kinds of investigations into different affiliates, allegations of corruption. At one point, Deckard had 50 people billing on that case. They ended up billing ENRC about $16 million in fees, not to mention there were many, many million dollars more spent on other matters. Fast forward to about 2017, ENRC goes to court in London alleging a quite incredible narrative in which Gerard had personally coordinated not only the initial leak that got that entire case started, but had actually sort of seeded information to the UK authority that had started looking into them because of that newspaper article. And this just snowballed and snowballed more and more allegations. Finally, this went to trial last year. There was a mini-week trial. Back in May of this year, the judge in the case uh, finally came out with this judgment. The decision, uh, if you really want to dig deep into it, it is 387 pages long. It is quite hey. extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. On expansive white-collar corruption? Yeah. You can't accuse them of a lack of thoroughness. Uh, it's quite amazing. And basically, the judge says, yes, not only did Gerard plant the initial story that got the UK regulatory authorities interested in his own client, in the firm's own client, but had led mm -hmm. the agency on with information, seeded it with information along the way, 
in order to, as the judge said, scaremonger his own client and force them to pour more and more and more money into this case. It's really quite wild and really quite amazing. So that was the the big happening uh, from this year. And so now there's this racketeering suit that was filed last week. And I guess, you know, Deckard is involved in that too. Can you walk us through what are the major takeaways from that? Well, this is an entirely separate matter that has been sort of bubbling for a number of years. That case was filed by a man named Farhad Azima. Azima is an Iranian-American who made a lot of money in the airline industry, reportedly uh, running weapons in various places in the world for many years. Azima, some years ago, was in business in Ras al-Haima, which is one of the emirates that make up the United Arab Emirates. Ras al-Haima was also represented by Deckard. Azima was ultimately sued in the UK by the Emirati's Sovereign Wealth Fund, and accused of fraud in some business dealings with some former uh, wealth fund executives who had fallen into uh, great disfavor uh, by the sort of rulers of the Emirati and who are now actually imprisoned. And he lost that trial. He was uh, hit with this $4 million judgment, basically the court saying that, yes, he had uh, misled his business partners and was involved in other corruption. Key in that trial was a huge cache of emails going back to 2016 that had been hacked from Azima's account and posted anonymously online, a hack and dump as we have come to know it in the uh, journalism world. And Azima has alleged all the way through that the hack of his account and quite a lot of other uh, malfeasance was orchestrated by the Ras al-Khaimi entities who, with whom he was uh, now opponents. So this had been simmering for quite some time. After this judgment in the ENRC case, he went to a New York federal court with a racketeering suit alleging that Gerard, who had been, and Deckard, who had been representing the Emirati through his entire mess with them, had orchestrated the hack themselves. His narrative is essentially that Gerard, while at Deckard, hired a North Carolina private investigator to then go out and pay, hire a series of Indian technology companies to hack his email and the emails of many, many other people in order to discredit him. They then allegedly posted this stuff online in a way that would give them anonymity and and the ability to take this stuff to court and say, you know, our hands are clean. We found this stuff posted anonymously online, but they're legit. And look at all the bad stuff that Azima is up to. So that's the narrative of of that lawsuit. It is uh, quite amazing. Uh, Azima has been fighting in his UK case to have the um, the judgment set aside because of all the revelations about Gerard and Decker that have come out in this separate matter. It has gotten a lot of traction in the UK. And in fact, he was able to win an appeal to get uh, some claims, counterclaims reinstated 
And the court in in London has basically said, when we have this retrial, we're going to do a a total do-over at this evidence. We're going to look at the source of the emails and try to root out the truth here about where all this dirty stuff came from. So he is sort of riding (laughs) the momentum, shall we say, both in the UK and then filing this RICO suit in the United States. And it was a big week for cyber hacking claims against Decker and Gerard because in a different case that is, again, derives from the same kind of basic fact pattern, the firm and Gerard got sued again. And this is by a former Wall Street Journal reporter with some pretty spicy allegations of its own that kind of follow along this same fact pattern. What is that looking like? Right. Well, one of um, Azima's uh, associates or somebody he was working with was a reporter in the United States named Jay Solomon. Uh, Solomon had been a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and had done a lot of reporting about the Middle East. Azima was a source and he had been in contact with Azima over a long period of time. And within the emails that were hacked and posted online were communications and text messages between Azima and Solomon. Solomon was fired from the Wall Street Journal in 2017, basically over his dealings with Azima and some uh, some kind of insinuations and emails that there had been some unethical uh, dealings between him and his source. Solomon has now gone to court in, in the same way that Azima is kind of uh, using the momentum of the uh, Gerard revelations in the UK in his case. Solomon is also kind of filing a mirror image suit saying, I was another victim of this same hack. It wasn't quite the same because it wasn't my email account that got hacked, but I was victimized nonetheless by all of these dirty dealings. So he is also suing Deckard, Gerard, the North Carolina private investigator, a PR firm that was involved, among others. I'm not saying I'm a proponent of this trend, but I hope (laughs) Netflix and like Hulu and the big streaming giants are paying attention because this seems like a great new miniseries for them. And they they love to jump on this stuff like before it's even over. So who knows? It's probably already in production. Yeah. Call call the script writers. Get them in the room. It's pretty good stuff. Yeah, it's it's a kind of story when you first read it, you think this it just can't be happening like You know, when you get to the point of these Indian hackers being hired by private investigators on behalf of a firm in Philadelphia, essentially, (laughs) it's it's quite amazing. Uh, There's a lot of money involved. And the findings in the London court in particular regarding Gerard are just, they're, they're quite amazing. Yeah, we can send it off uh, looking at that. We're talking about a couple of different legal proceedings across many different jurisdictions, and you've done a good job kind of cleanly telling us what's going on. A couple of these matters are quite new. I'm sure we'll continue to watch them. Where is the attention going to be for this Deckert-Gerard saga here in the coming weeks? Well, I think the the UK court that um, has been dealing with Azima's case is kind of the center of the action for the time being. Like I said, he won an appeal on some of his counterclaims, his hacking claims against Deckard and Gerard, There is going to be a trial if they don't settle at some point. Uh, very notably, the Sovereign Wealth Fund that won that trial has basically dropped their defense in that case and told the court, you know, we were advised by corrupt third-party actors. Uh, I think we know who we're talking about there. And 
have tried to settle. Zima apparently has not uh, taken them up on that offer. So I think what we can look for is evidence and judgments in that case feeding into the U.S. uh, litigations as they go forward. Also notably, the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, which is the uh, big UK legal industry regulator, has also started looking into this. The news of that only came out a few months ago, which is a little bit interesting considering how long this has been going on. But um, they have to deal with that as well. No shortage of drama here uh, and on the other side of the pond as well. Andrew, you always do such an amazing job keeping us uh, updated on all the stuff uh, that is burning up the legal industry. And I'm sure everybody's eager to see what happens next here. So uh, thanks for joining Pro Se again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Haley, it's been a pretty wonky show for us. A lot of interesting cases. And this is certainly no different. Uh, What are we talking about today? We are going to talk about conspiracy theories. And not related to Alex Jones for once, which is also uh, made a lot gotten a lot of hay here. And you know, I was really hoping to have Dave Roberts on just... Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I had a a lot lot of... I had a lot of questions for the man. But <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know but if he, he emailed, uh, but he's uh, not working currently, so he might have yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In any event, so hopefully, you know, the, the conspiracy theory teaser there is not overselling this at all. But we are going to talk about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I'm familiar with it. And yeah. I'm excited to talk about this with you because uh, I learned this morning that you are a self-proclaimed JFK assassination nerd. Yeah, I mean, it's an object of fascination for me. I've read a lot of books. I've also seen Oliver Stone's movie JFK like dozens of times. And that is far from a canonical document. That movie is like really insane, but does involve <laughs> a real court case um, and the only actual charge brought in the killing of JFK. Anyway, what is this case we're talking about, though? This was a lawsuit that was filed against Joe Biden in the National Archives. And it is they're being accused of dragging their feet illegally on releasing records on the assassination, which the government for years has promised to release, yet Mm -hmm. still has not. Yes, and this has played out across administrations of both parties, where you'll talk in a moment here about laws that were passed to sort of unmask a lot of the mystery around this particular incident. And the government has kind of talked out of both sides of its mouth by both saying, uh, there's really nothing that explosive in these documents, but also we're not going to release them. And it's just kind of this... I don't know what's in them, but it keeps raising questions if you don't actually do the thing that you are bound to by law. So what is this lawsuit alleging? So this suit was filed by the Mary Farrell Foundation, and that is a nonprofit that happens to have the largest online collection of available records on the assassination. I'm sure, Alex, you've I don't, I don't know. I'm making assumptions here, but you've probably spent some time on their website. I don't I, know. Um, I, am, I am familiar, <laughs> yes. So the foundation sued on Wednesday, and they're hoping to force the government to release all remaining documents on the assassination. 
So a couple key facts to set us up here. These records were put together pursuant to the John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992. And that law required the documents to be made public by October 2017. Trump delayed their release. And now Biden is also delaying that release, according to the suit. The vice president of the foundation, his name is Jefferson Morley. He said this week, it's high time that the government got its act together and obeyed the spirit and the letter of the law. This is about our history and our right to know it. This law that you're referencing, this uh, Records Collection Act, was passed in part, actually, because of the release of Oliver Stone's J. It was, yeah. Because now, that, while I already said, now that is a work of fiction, but at least kind of regenerated interest. I mean, obviously, it's always been an object of interest in the public mind, but really kind of cast a new light on a lot of the sort of more elaborate theories as to what happened in Dallas in 1963. I said before we recorded this that I was going to try and uh, keep my comments above board here, but I did just want to say I'm sensing some tension from your end of the Zoom, and I promise it's going to be okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm excited. I'm waiting with bated breath. Yeah. Um, so I just want to say, like, over the years, it's kind of like there are so many far-flung theories as to who was involved in the killing of the president from the American intelligence community, the mob, Cuban refugees, et cetera, whatever. You can read about them. I will say, and no one, we may never know for sure, depending on what is going on with these documents. I will say that over the years, and I've read about this for most of my adult life, I have come around to the single shooter theory. Okay. And which is almost like that almost is a conspiracy theory in and of itself now, because it's like square to have that opinion. The totemic book here is uh, Vincent Bugliosi's book, Reclaiming History. And I read that a couple of years ago, which is like a, like a 1600 page book that's just like makes an exhaustive case for Goodness. the lone for the lone shooter. Uh, you know, and he's a he was a prosecutor. He wrote an OJ book. I think some people think he's like a little bit of a crank, but it's nothing if not exhaustive. So I don't know. Uh, I'd like to see the documents just as uh, an interested citizen. But uh, yeah. you know. I was going to ask what what do you think? As as our as pro says, I've now deemed you resident expert <laughs> on JFK's assassination. Please wildly speculate about what yeah, you right. think is in, in the documents. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not an expert. I never said that. I said it was an object <laughs> of fascination, and I'm going to stick with that framing. I'm not an expert. Okay. And I don't know. There's lots of questions about sort of Oswald's history in Moscow. There are gaps in his resume. I, I, I can picture him, you know, sort of being sitting in a job interview says here, you were in Moscow. You want to explain that? Um, and that's all like a lot of like some hearsay and like thinly sourced government stuff. But I don't know. I'm eager to uh, see if anything comes of this lawsuit. I kind of doubt it because the government holds a lot of sway here. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that to us, though. I'm uh, eagerly excited. Me too. Me too. Well, on that note, I think it's about time to get out of here. Yeah, I mean, before I mean, before we get, uh, you know, disappeared into a government archive of uh, someone else's uh, creation. It's anyway, true. We're, we're uh, <laughs> on a slippery slope here. Thank you so much for being on the show as always, Haley. A lot of fun. Thank you, Alex.
We have many people to thank for helping us put on this week's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Andrew Strickler, and contributing reporters, David Steele and Lauren Berg. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, just head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week.